today, especially those of you who are guests this morning. Um, whether you are family or a friend or someone invited you or you just decided to come on your own, we're glad you're here today. Um, I told some of, these, some of our folks this morning, if you filled your row, you get a smiley face by your name or a gold star or something. So there are a number of you who will have smiley faces and gold stars by your name this week, I guess. Have you ever had a problem you couldn't solve? I think we all have. Um, they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes, small ones, big ones. Some can be frustrating or irritating, maybe even frightening. Sometimes they leave us feeling hopeless because there seems to be no answer or solution that we can find. That's when we have to look outside ourselves to draw upon resources other than our own. And uh, depending on the problem, we may go to a book or the internet or the doctor or the mechanic or electrician or plumber or counselor or pastor or a trusted friend maybe. Someone who can help us when we are unable to help ourselves. I, I ran into a problem like that several years ago. There's probably a lot of people here for whom it wouldn't have been a problem because they're a lot smarter than me when it comes to this stuff, but... I was replacing the linoleum flooring in our home with, you know, the wood laminate stuff that's pretty popular. And, and uh, we, were re- we were putting that laminate down in our um, dining room and kitchen and utility room. And in our house, that kind of ran dining, kitchen, utility. And our hot water heater was in the utility room. And so to get the laminate flooring down, I had to take it out, which was no big deal. But it was plumbed, I call it hard plumbed, it was plumbed in with a galvanized pipe. So I got the laminate flooring in, went to put the hot water heater back in, and because it was now raised a little bit with that new flooring, I, I couldn't get my hot water, connect, hot water heater connected again. And so I bought a short, well, I thought, well, well, I'll just go buy a shorter piece of galvanized, and then it was too short and wouldn't reach. And it's, you know, so you're, I'm trying to, pretty soon it's like, man, I'm never going to. So we had a, a guy in our church who was a master plumber, and I gave him a call. He came over. He went down. Well, he brought with him, uh, it's a kind of a twisted, flexible copper, hooked it up at both ends, boom, done. I don't know why I didn't know about that, but it was a problem I couldn't solve, and I had to look outside myself. And all you guys who know, that's what I would have done, are laughing at me right now. (laughs) Well, so why Easter? Why Easter? Well, we all have a problem that we can't solve. And the problem is our sin. Gail, would you come up and share some scripture with us? Would you stand, please, in respect for God's word as I read? Thank you. Two short scriptures at this time. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned. All have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. And now Romans 6.23 
For the wages of sin is death. The wages are death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Gail. Well, the scriptures that Gail just read tell us a few very important things. Number one, we all sin. We've all sinned. Number two, sin is serious business and the penalty is death. And number three is the good news. God offers us the gift of eternal life. And for a few moments, I want to focus on those first two ideas. We all sin and sin is serious business and the penalty is death. See, the problem began a long time ago with our original parents, Adam and Eve. They were put in this incredible place called the Garden of Eden and given every tree in the garden to eat except one. And guess what? They blew it. They ate from that tree. They did what God told them they shouldn't do. They disobeyed God. And disobedience to God is sin. They chose to do what they wanted to do instead of what God told them to do. And they paid the consequences and it's been a mess ever since. When we choose to do our own thing, to pursue a life of sin, our wages will be spiritual death. There's no getting around that fact. Because of the sin of Adam, we all die physically. Because of our own sin, we face spiritual death or separation from God, which is the same thing because God is life. But there's a tendency, especially in our culture, to skirt the issue of personal sin. And we do that in a few different ways. We say... Well, we deny the problem. So we say, well, people are basically good. Here's what God says in Jeremiah 17, 9. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? And in Psalm 51, 5, the psalmist writes, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Well, throw off that excuse. Well, we try good works. We say, if I do enough good things, then the bad things I do won't matter. Here's what God says. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We can't do enough good things. And then we, we justify ourselves. We say, well, it's not, re- it's not really that bad. Everybody does it. We're more enlightened than people who lived way back then. Times have changed. Here's what God says. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And in Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8, The prophet wrote, Someone told me to shout, and I asked, What should I shout? We humans are merely grass, and we last no longer than wildflowers. At the Lord's command, flowers and grass disappear, and so do we. 
flowers and grass fade away, but what our God has said will never change. Throw out that excuse. None of those reasons work. It's all incorrect thinking. And the result is that we remain in our sin and sin alienates us from God. And the Bible tells us the condition we are in when we are alienated from God. The Bible says when we're alienated from God, we are spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2, In the past, you were spiritually dead because of your sins and the things you did against God. Yes, in the past you lived the way the world lives, following the ruler of the evil powers that are above the earth. That same spirit is now working in those who refuse to obey. When we're alienated from God, we're separated from Him. Isaiah 59, verse 2, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear. When we're alienated from God, the Bible says we're blind. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. When we're alienated from God, we are enslaved. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 25 and 26. Paul writes to Timothy, Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will learn the truth. Then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap, for they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. That's the condition. Those are the conditions we find ourselves in when we are alienated from God. And I think one of the hardest things for somebody who is not in Christ to grasp is that is their lostness and their need for redemption. Now, don't get me wrong, I think most everybody realizes that they're not perfect. And probably most people would accept the notion that they've sinned. But where I find most people get hung up is in the idea that their sin renders them dead spiritually, separated from God eternally, blinded to the truth and enslaved by Satan. Really? Oh, sure, we know that Assad, who's ruling in Syria right now, needs redemption. We know that Kim Jong-un needs redemption. We all know that. We know the sex trafficker needs redemption. We know that serial killers need redemption. But me? Nah. Oh, but we are people in need of redemption. And I think instinctively, most of us know that. Listen, we deal with the brokenness of our world every day, don't we? As many as one-third of our population are are on some kind of meds to help them cope. Alcohol and prescription drug abuse are on the rise. We are enslaved to guilt, enslaved to fear, enslaved to emptiness. We are sinners in need of redemption. 
But that's why Jesus came. To redeem us. To rescue us. Why Easter? The solution. Because of the solution. The cross. Dean, share our next passages of scripture with us. I'm reading from Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And then I'll switch over to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. So if you can stand again. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And then if you'll give me a second. Sorry. So second or first Peter chapter two verse twenty four. He himself bore our sins. <laughs> give me a second, please. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. I mentioned moments ago that we needed redemption. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, it says, In him... Speaking of Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Julie mentioned that a while ago. It's God's grace that has reached to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Redemption is the action of gaining or regaining possession of something in exchange for payment or clearing a debt. In this case... It's the action of gaining a right relationship with God in exchange for payment or clearing of a debt. We are a world in need of redemption. And it comes from outside ourselves. That problem of sin, it can only be solved from outside ourselves. That's the way sin is. It's one of the areas of life that we cannot fix ourselves. We need help. When sin entered the world, God had a way to conquer it. I cannot cure my sin problem without Jesus. Jesus is the one who God sent to fix that problem for us. And to understand that, we have to go way back in the Scriptures. We go clear back to the time that that the Jewish people were in captivity in Egypt. And God wanted them now set free to return to their homeland. And they had a ruler named Pharaoh who was a pretty tough, hard-hearted guy. And so God sent these different, well, the Bible calls them plagues, to try to convince him that it was a good idea to let 
the Jewish people go. And there were all kinds of things that happened. Plagues of flies and plagues of gnats and water turned to blood and darkness and hailstones and locusts and frogs. Pharaoh was immovable. He was immovable. And so finally God said, one more plague. The eldest child in each house is going to die on a given night. And he said, the way to prevent that from happening, the way to protect you from death, and this is what he told his people to do, is you need to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood of that lamb over the door frames of your houses. It was the blood of the lamb that saved them from death. God was giving us a picture of what would happen down through the annals of time when He sent His Son. Throughout the whole Old Testament, there's this system of sacrifice for sins. Lambs sacrificed over and over again. It, again, the wages of sin is death. It's serious business. And, and the lambs that were sacrificed had to be perfect. The very best that they could bring out of the flock. And it was their blood that covered the people's sins. But the problem is, they sinned again and again and they had to sacrifice again and again and again and again. So so God sent His own Lamb. Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God. In fact, the Scripture tells us in John chapter 1, verse 29, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The once for all sacrifice. No more of this over and over and over again. Hebrews Chapter 7, verse 27. Unlike other high priests, again, speaking of Jesus, He, Jesus, does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for His own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when He offered Himself, the Lamb of God. And then, in Hebrews 10, 4, it tells us, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats and lambs to take away sin. Only Jesus, the Lamb of God, could do that. In the biblical sense, forgiveness has to do with God's restoration of the relationship between Himself and man, which was broken by our sin. Forgiveness does not mean the suspension of consequences in this life. Listen, if you rob a bank and you're sent to jail and you find Jesus in jail, it doesn't mean you won't have to serve your sentence. But it does mean that your relationship with your Heavenly Father is restored and you now have the promise of eternal life. Again, I want to look at this passage that that Dean read for us from Colossians. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Now, I don't know. 
that's, let, let me read it in a more uh, common language version. I'm going to read it from the Living Bible, that same passage. You were dead in sins and your sinful desires were not yet cut away. That's the uncircumcision thing. Then He gave you a share in the very life of Christ, for He forgave all your sins and blotted out the charges proved against you. The list of His commandments which you had not obeyed. He took this list of sins and destroyed it by nailing it to Christ's cross. That uncircumcision word. Circumcision was a sign for the Jewish people of dedication and obedience to God. Uncircumcision then meant unholiness or unwholesomeness, disobedience to God. And it says that he he canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. In some Bible translations, they use a single word for that phrase. The charge of our legal indebtedness, he canceled it. That word is redemption. Redemption is about someone else paying for us the price. The legal indebtedness that we owe. In Bible times, when you broke the law, they took the charge and the penalty, the charge and the penalty, and they wrote it on a piece of parchment, and they would nail it or attach it to the cell where you were held. So it would say, charge, maybe theft, and the penalty, three years imprisonment, or charge, assault, the penalty, five years imprisonment, so that the jailer would make sure you stayed in there until your debt was paid in full. And when you had paid your debt, they would write across the parchment a Greek word in those days, tetelestai. That word, that Greek word means paid in full. Tetelestai. And then give it to you to prove you had paid the price for your crime. You had paid it in case you were questioned about that. When Christ died on the cross, His last words were, It is finished. Guess what the Greek word is there? Tetelestai. Paid in full. Isn't that amazing? Again, from Colossians 2.14, Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us, and condemned us, He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Condemned us. That's what our sin did. It condemned us. And what was the penalty for our sins? Death. Separation from God. But what does Jesus do for us when we surrender our lives to Him? He writes, paid in full on the charges against us, and He nails them to the cross. We need redemption. And Jesus came to redeem us. Why Easter? Because of the victory. The resurrection. Gail, come share with us. Will you stand again, please? Thank you.
In chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul begins to review what he's preached to them before. I want to pick that up at verse 3 and read through 8. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now, reading ahead, skipping ahead to verse 17 through 20. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Thank you for your attention. The word of the Lord. I tell you this morning that the resurrection is the validation for everything Jesus Christ did, everything Jesus Christ said, that he was who he said he was and did what the Bible says he did and what he did on the cross for those who accept him, he will do just what the Bible says he will do. Jesus did what only God can do because Jesus is God. In fact, in John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said, The Father and I are one. In John 14, 7, He said, If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. And then it tells us, But God raised Him from the dead, freeing Him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on Him because Jesus is God. You can't kill God. We like to listen, on, especially on East... Julie had it cranked up yesterday afternoon. We like to listen. Do you remember... Do you remember uh, some of you remember Carmen? Remember Carmen? He sings a song about Jesus and the grave... And Satan's having this conversation with the grave. And the grave thinks, we've got him. In fact, at one point, grave says to to Satan, Hey, Big D, the Jew's on ice. Don't worry. But then as the song goes along, you hear grave say, Wait a minute. Somebody's messing with the stone and then it, the stone is rolled away and it bounced a time or two. 
And an angel appeared and said, Yo, I'm Gabriel. Who are you? (laughs) The grave could not hold Jesus. In Romans 6, 9, it says, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over Him. He rose never to die again. And what does that mean for those of us who accept Jesus as Savior? It means, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me will live even though He dies. And whoever lives and believes in Me will never die. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, And God will raise us from the dead by His power, just as He raised our Lord from the dead. That is our hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the villages of northern India, a missionary was preaching at a local bazaar. As he closed, a Muslim gentleman came up to him and said, You must admit that we have one thing you have not, and it is better than anything you have. The missionary smiled and said, I should be pleased to hear what that is. The Muslim said, You know, when we go to Mecca, we at least find a coffin. But when you Christians go to Jerusalem, which is your Mecca, you find nothing but an empty grave. But the missionary just smiled and said, that is just the difference. Muhammad is dead. Muhammad is in the coffin. And false systems of religion and philosophy are in their coffins. But Jesus Christ, whose kingdom is to include all nations and kindreds and tribes, is not here because... He is risen. And all power in heaven and on earth are given unto Him. That is our hope. A living Christ. That is our hope. He is not dead, but alive forevermore. Jesus' death on the cross effectively takes away something we deserved. Death. And His resurrection allows us to partake of that which we do not deserve, eternal life. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 and 22. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, Adam, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man, Jesus Christ. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. Um, Some of you may have read the book, The Case for Christ. It's by a man named Lee Strobel. And I have a video clip uh, that features him that I'd like you to see for the next moments. When I was an atheist and legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, I would have smirked at the fact that Easter this year falls on April Fool's Day. Because back then, I thought that anyone would have to be a fool to think that Jesus literally rose from the dead. One day, my wife gave me the news that she'd become a Christian. And so I decided to take my journalism training and legal training and debunk the resurrection of Jesus. So I spent two years of my life analyzing the historical data. And what I found really shocked me. I recounted in my book, The Case for Miracles. 
First of all, I found that there's no dispute among scholars that Jesus was dead after being crucified. Uh, the famous atheist New Testament scholar Gerd Ludeman says it's historically indisputable that he was dead. The Journal of the American Medical Association says that based on the historical and medical evidence, that Jesus was clearly dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. Second, we have early reports of the resurrection of Jesus. Reports that come so quickly, you can't just write them off as being a legend. In fact, we have one report of the resurrection, including named eyewitnesses, that has been dated back by scholars to within months of the death of Jesus. Friends, that is historical gold. Third, we have the empty tomb. And I found that even the opponents of Jesus implicitly conceded that the tomb of Jesus was empty. And then fourth, we have nine ancient sources inside and outside the New Testament confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus. Friends, that is an avalanche of historical data. And then we have seven ancient sources inside and mostly outside the New Testament that confirm that the disciples lived lives of deprivation and suffering as a result of their proclamation that Jesus had risen. Why were they willing to do that? Because they heard a rumor that he'd risen? No, because they were there. They touched him. They ate with him. They talked with him. They knew the truth. And knowing the truth, they were willing to proclaim it, even despite the suffering they endured. Friends, I spent two years investigating this evidence. And it came down to one day when I reviewed it all and I thought, you know what? Based on the historical data, my verdict is that Jesus not only claimed to be the Son of God, he backed up that claim by returning from the dead. And that's the moment that I decided to confess my sin, to turn from that, to receive this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus purchased for me on the cross. And at that moment, I became a child of God. Some people have a rush of emotion at that moment. I didn't. You know what I had? I had the rush of reason. Because the resurrection of Jesus is not some April Fool's Day joke. It is a historical reality based not on mythology or make-believe or wishful thinking, but a solid foundation of historical truth. He talked there at the end about the redemptive work of Jesus. And I would ask today... Have you been redeemed by the Lamb of God? That's why Jesus came. He came to redeem you. He came to redeem me. He paid for your sin and mine on the cross and conquered it when he walked out of the tomb on that first resurrection morning. Pray with me, would you? Father, thank you today for <laughs> the historical evidence that says that what Jesus did on the cross and the power and through his resurrection are not some story, some fable, some myth, some legend that someone came up with, but it is a fact. Jesus died for our sins. He rose again in victory. And we can share today in that victory if we confess our sins, if we ask Jesus to forgive us and accept him in our lives as Savior and Lord, knowing that then we too, once Jesus is, is our Lord and Savior, we too can share 
in the power and the hope of the resurrection. So just for a moment this morning, with our heads bowed, I would ask you if if you know that you need to be redeemed this morning, if you know that you need to have your relationship with God restored through the blood of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, I would ask you just to pray this simple prayer with me. You can pray it to yourself. Lord Jesus, I believe that you are God. I believe that you shed your blood on the cross for my sins. I believe that you rose from the dead. I thank you today that you loved me enough to go to Calvary's cross. And I thank you today that I, by believing in you in the name of Jesus Christ, can share in the victory and the hope and the power of the resurrection. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have just done for me. And I pray this in your name. Amen. With your heads bowed still, if there's anyone who prayed that prayer today, who made the choice to accept Jesus as Savior, would just put your hand up quickly and take it down again. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you did make that decision today, would you tell someone about it? And if you would feel comfortable in doing so, I would appreciate it if you would let me know too. You can talk to me. You can email me. You can call the church office and just say, I want to talk to the pastor. I'd like to know. Father, we thank you today that You are still redeeming mankind through the blood of Jesus. We're glad today that we could celebrate what he did on the cross and what he did in overcoming even the tomb. We rejoice in your goodness and your great love for us. We give you thanks and glory and honor. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.